this week on the Back Table Podcast. One of the other things that comes up a lot in terms of that is like, do I take time off? I think I need to do an entire research year. Do I do it between one and two, two and three, three and four? And I'm like, do you want to be a clinician scientist? You may not know that answer right now, but like, do you? Then yeah, sure. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe you know you're like on that track. But otherwise, to take an entire year off to do research just to try to make yourself marketable to maybe go and be the small ENT practice in your hometown that you know you've wanted to go back to because they put your ear tubes in when you were two. Having those be the hurdles that people are thinking about to try to get into our specialty, I think is really challenging. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT Podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. This is Ashley Agan, General ENT, here with my lovely co-host, Dr. Gopi Shaw. Hello, everybody. It's nice to see you, Ash. Always great to see you too, Gopi. We've got a wonderful show for you guys today. I'll get into our introductions of Dr. Sarah Bowe. She's a pediatric otolaryngologist with the U.S. Air Force, currently working as the Director of Pediatric Otolaryngology with the Defense Health Agency in the San Antonio market at Joint Base San Antonio, Texas. She is the vice chair of the Department of Surgery at Brook Army Medical Center and an associate professor of surgery at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. Today, she's with us to talk about the otolaryngology match. What are we doing right? What do we need to do better? What has happened in the past few years? Welcome to the show, Sarah. Let's get into it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you guys today. I feel like, and I, I know we were saying this a little bit earlier, I feel like I, this is crazy the first time I'm actually talking to you directly, and yet I feel like I've been orbiting around in similar spaces as you, Sarah, and so I'm really excited, and I love that you're a pediatric ENT as well. You're a kind of legend, I'm just saying, people know, and you're a force, but anyway, so yeah, tell first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Yeah, so I'm in San Antonio. I first came down here about 10 years ago, and that was after I finished residency at the Ohio State University. And then I practiced as a general ENT for three years before going back for fellowship, which I did up at Mass Eye and Ear in Boston. And then time goes by very quickly. I've been back down here now for almost another five years, which just seems crazy. And so I get to work with residents down here. We have a joint program with both Army and Air Force, and that's what I really love to do. And, you know, today we're talking about the match process and applying to otolaryngology. How did you find yourself somewhat of a, an expert in these topics? I think all of us, when we're residents and fellows, are involved in the selection process, but we're residents and fellows and very busy and go through the motions of the way it's always been done before. And so when I got down here as faculty, then I was on the other side of the equation. And really, our selection process is a little bit unique in the military because we do have our own military match and the military medical services and generals are involved. And so it operates a little different than the civilian match. But so just the process itself, as we as I was going through it on the faculty side, I just started having a lot of curiosity as to why do we do it this way? Or what's the background for why we do it this way? And how long have we been doing it this way? And has it ever changed? And 
are there other ways to maybe do it? And so that has literally sent me on this kind of wild goose chase and <laughs> long segment of time where I've learned a lot of different things along the way. And and I think that some of the different leadership roles that I've had either locally or nationally have also given me different kind of perspectives and lenses to take to the problem as well, or not problem, but the process as well. Because I've had roles in quality improvement and patient safety as well as diversity, equity, inclusion, and well-being. And so they really all culminate in sort of this match process and and thinking about the future workforce and just otolaryngology, especially, I think, some of my experience from quality improvement and patient safety. So let's first just talk about the application process. I feel like there's been so many little but major changes in the last two years, three years. For our listeners who may not necessarily be directly involved in the application process or who are interested or who are otolaryngologists even out in the last five years, things are very different right now. So could you kind of tell us some of the changes that have been going on? Yeah, that that's another reason why in some ways I think this space is very exciting right now. I've been doing this kind of otolaryngology residency selection stuff for a while. And if you even just look quickly at PubMed around those terms that like there are some like research and papers about this topic. And then literally since like 2020, 40 percent of the papers on this topic have been written in that time period. And probably because we all know that something happened in 2020 that has literally been, I think, probably the biggest shakeup in recent history to the selection process and application process. Certainly, that is a big one, and I think we can talk about a couple things in relation to that. But even two other things that have been on the horizon recently, one of which is actually the single accreditation system. And that is something that actually has been going on since 2015, but it was actually the merging of the osteopathic accreditation system and the allopathic accreditation system. And so that happened between 2015 and actually finished in 2020. So the first single match actually happened in 2021. Some of that kind of knowledge and maybe like awareness of that was probably a little bit lost in the COVID shuffle as well, because it really was a time where all osteopathic applicants and all allopathic applicants were applying into the same system and really competing for the same positions. And throughout that time, there was actually a pretty large decrease in the number of osteopathic positions that ended up carrying over during that accreditation process because not as many osteopathic programs became accredited under the allopathic process. We don't necessarily speak to that too much, but I think that was also just a really interesting period where we certainly work with, and a number of my colleagues actually in the military are osteopathic physicians, and they're literally one of them is my best friend. And so that certainly, I think, added some challenges to that community as well when that merger happened. And that's across all specialties. Yep. Okay. And it, and basically, because not all of the osteopathic programs came under the fold of the single system, so there were less spots and more people. Is that accurate? Yeah. So in 2015, there were 20 osteopathic residency programs. And by 2020, when that kind of accreditation application acceptance process happened, there were only 13 that actually made it into the kind of ACGM accreditation space. It actually, like in terms of total, total numbers, 
they went from 149 total osteopathic positions. That's not just like PGY1s. That's like kind of total. But by 2020, that was kind of 90 that ended up carrying over. So it essentially was like about a 33% decrease in terms of total applicant positions available. And so then that kind of carries over if there's applicants seeking out those from an osteopathic standpoint, then just by and large numbers that adds to some of the competition. Yeah, I definitely think that went unnoticed by a lot of people. Just again, again, because COVID was such a big disruptor in itself that I don't know if I realized that that was happening during that same time period. Wow, that's crazy because to go to almost half, that's, you know, and I honestly didn't really even realize that. And then there were some pretty major changes with USMLE, AOA. Tell us a little bit about that. Step one becoming, it became pass-fail. Was that 2020 as well or is that 2021? Or Yeah, that that was the final date on that was kind of January 2022. So it's only actually been about a year or so that it was kind of that changeover date. And so it's certainly something where kind of this coming match or this coming application kind of process and certainly the one after, it's getting to the point where there's very, very few to almost no individuals that have a score. The fact that reapplicants and some individuals, depending on when they take it during their medical school, might have it, even also puts up a little bit of interesting quandary for what you do during that, you know, these next two selection pools, because you may have individuals that have passed fail, and you may have individuals that have a really high score. And so probably some of the natural bias is to be like, I know that that high score is there. And so you can have some of that slight safety perspective in terms of board passage rates. But then for the past fail, it's like, well, now what do we do? And I think that everyone is asking that question. Yeah. And I think talking about step one, I think you have to consider the context of everything and what it was meant to be used for and then what it has been used as, you know, as a proxy for being able to filter hundreds of applications. Because I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like Somewhere along the way, somebody told me that there is no correlation with a high step one, meaning that you're actually going to be a stellar doctor or superstar resident, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things that comes out when you look at basically like selection practices and selection research, a lot of that has been in the kind of the business world and other industries for a really long time. One of the kind of benefits that they have is that you can sometimes identify more concrete outcomes of performance. And when you think about like, oh, did somebody get this many sales? You can have more kind of concrete comparisons. In our case, you know, it's like, well, you know, is it, did they finish residency? Did they go into practice? What did they go into? Like, what are our outcomes? And so when you start to look at what we pick on the front end selection wise, then you're like, what can we connect that to? And so the few studies that have tried to say, okay, does USMLE connect to performance in residency? Most of those studies are actually just really low quality. There are some that asked like three program directors to rank like all of the people that graduated from their program from like one to 40 something for the last 17 years. And that was like the outcome metric, which I like, I can't even remember like what I ate for lunch last Wednesday. So trying to like actually classify graduating residents into a hierarchy of performance over a like extended time period 
is probably not the best metric to compare against. And so that's where even though you may find some signal, it's probably really just in a bunch of noise. And that piece probably isn't very valid. But the one thing that has been connected to is it is a standardized test. And it is from that standpoint, it does connect and correlate reasonably well with board passage rates. And so that that's where because the their existence from like a construct standpoint in the fact that it's like, I am a standardized test, like looking at medical knowledge, you know, incorporating some patient care-ish pieces. And then that's also what the board exam essentially kind of does. And so they're looking at similar things. And so they're reasonably good at correlating kind of that performance aspect. And that makes sense. If you score well, you're a good test taker. The other thing is what makes a good resident at one program may not always mean that you're a good resident at a different program because there's some questions of like fit and the culture and different things. So, I mean, it's definitely hard to kind of create this numerical system. Can you speak to how the step one score came to be this filtering system or cutoff? I think at least when I was in medical school, you know, it was very common for them to say, oh, you need a 250 if you want to go into this. I felt like it was really common to use step one score as like, a okay, you this is what you can probably get into. And if you're lower than that, then it's just not going to happen. No, absolutely. I mean, as the ERAS system transitioned to a more computerized system, you could basically kind of fill out the bulk of it and it could go to just select the increasing number of places you want to send it to. That then made it much easier. And so that's where we've just kind of continued to see this exponential rise, which is often called like the application arms race, where I think last year, you know, applicants applied to over 80 programs, I believe. And the average kind of program themselves got well into, I think, the 400s in terms of application numbers. And so when you look at it from that kind of time and investment perspective of trying to go through those applications, and in some ways, wanting to do the due diligence of going through a full application, which is lengthy. Like if you take 400 times 50 pages, it's exorbitant. So I think that's where that filter comes from. And certainly it's pretty, pretty common. A survey that I did of program directors just a couple of years ago, which actually ended up being literally the year right before COVID hit. We have some nice background data on what program directors did before COVID. So it's just ripe (laughs) for another, another repeat survey in probably a year or two. But about half of the programs that responded indicated that they did set some kind of filter, meaning that they don't even download all of the applications from the ERAS system because they can be placed into the system at that level. And out of those that set a filter, about 85% of them used USMLE Step 1 as their filter. And it, it varied. Most of them were at least over like 220. The The larger majority were at least over a 230. But there were some as high as like a 255 as their filter. So we talked about Step 1 now being pass-fail. And, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a mixed bag for a little bit potentially. And that filter is not going to be applicable anymore. What about AOA? Because many programs have gotten rid of it completely, many, many medical schools. Is that? I think that there there are a fair amount that have started to step away from AOA. And some of that 
also kind of is in association with how that was heavily reliant on standardized tests and grades. There is some literature and research to support that standardized tests are not always the same score for individuals of different kind of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic backgrounds, all of variety of factors that go into either having the resources to potentially be able to study for kind of those tests and be able to have the time because maybe you're not working to support yourself or even just the way kind of the test questions are, are written and how that relates to kind of the, the background that individuals come from. And so along those same lines, a lot of schools also are going away from having grades and going to pass-fail, which is another challenge because then then you're like, okay, well, what do we have then in terms of some of that cognitive piece, which is still very important? And, you know, certainly we get the luxury of having individuals that have made it into medical school. So that already sets a pretty high bar. But we know that there are probably individuals that maybe shouldn't make it out of medical school. But how, you know, how do we get that information? And that sometimes is not translated well or similar to as we see on the resident side. It's hard to stop somebody in that career path when they've gotten to that point. So I think that happens in medical school as well. Are they still getting the interview question? Like the, they're like a personality, like questionnaire that they get, the applicant gets from, is it from ERA, like, or the NMRP? Like who, is there something like that still happening? Anything about the to, year that they did the phone call that was kind of like yes. a, yeah. Is that still happening? I don't think that's going okay. on. That was a, a pilot project and then it is no longer happening. There was some initial work that was kind of released on that as they were doing the pilot project. I think at the moment, they haven't done that for a couple of years, I think. And so in speaking of these different metrics that are going away, obviously we're on the program side of it. So we're thinking about like, how are we going to differentiate applicants? But I think on the applicant side of it as well, they're thinking, how do I make myself stand out? And can you speak to some of the consequences on the applicant side of it when they can't depend on, you know, oh, if I get a really good step one, maybe that's going to propel me there. How do they stand out now? I know I have students are wanting, you know, needing and wanting to start doing tons of research, like as soon as they <laughs> step into the medical school door, because they're like, I got to have 100 papers if I want to apply to ENT. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I think it was interesting because as the whole step one to pass fail piece was coming about, there's so much to it that was focused on like, this is a stressful thing. This is causing anxiety. The reason why we're switching this is to help the medical students. But then there there were quite a few commentaries that came out, Most many of them from individuals from disadvantaged backgrounds of various kinds saying, that was how I stood out. Like you took something away from me in a way, especially, you know, we certainly have more medical schools than there are programs. So we have individuals coming from like no home ENT programs and those individuals, it's harder for them to have kind of the mentorship and build the relationships. And so again, some ways to sort of get that foot in the door for ENT was to 
pass a threshold by having a, a relatively high score. And so that at least that was kind of one measure of getting in the door. And so I think that for the medical students, I totally feel for them. And for many of them at the moment, it's hard to know exactly the best way to answer at face value. It's probably very different for each of them and even the program that they come from and whether do I take step two or not is like the question that I get constantly now because we haven't mandated it. I think there's probably a feeling that step two is going to replace step one. It's kind of out there hinted at in surveys and commentaries and editorials that step two will become the new step one because that has not changed yet to pass fail. So students are like, well, I passed step one. Should I maybe not take step two? Because what if I do bad on step two? Then I actually like just shot myself in the foot as opposed to like, well, what if I do great on step two? Some of the questions I've kind of asked is like, well, how have you done on your shelf exams? How have you done kind of on other standardized testing that should would could give you some of that information as to, to thinking about whether or not to do step two? And step two happens later. So at least step one happened, you know, early enough that if you if you scored lower, you kind of knew, OK, I'm not going to shoot for one of these more competitive specialties. But now you're going along and you're like, I'm planning on applying to ENT or something super competitive. Then you take step two and it's, you know, maybe not as competitive as it needs to be or that you want it to be. And now you're a third year medical student about, you know, trying to rearrange your sub eyes and decide what you want to do. It's I have these conversations with the medical students and it's hard. Yeah, it seems like we don't know what to tell them to shoot for because we don't know what the rules are that we're playing by anymore because all of our those metrics are gone. So as a department, how do you review 400 applications? What are people looking at as do you have something to screen anymore? Do you use that tactic? Is this a way to say, hey, we can't maybe we don't screen as much with a single number numeric value or a single AOA yes or no checkbox, how does that kind of make you have to reevaluate? And I feel like it, it's kind of leads to the question of, like you said, both of y'all said, you know, residency programs, everyone's going to be a little bit different. Every program has a different culture, different feel to it. it. It also kind of begets to a bit of who are we as a program, what's important to us, but are we able to translate that into how we select and what metrics we use? Yeah, I think in some ways there was probably like a few different points <laughs> in what you were just talking about there. I think that, again, too, the resources that are available to different programs can also impact what they're able to do. So certainly if you're a smaller residency program and, and you maybe only have six faculty, it's hard to think about holistically going through 400 applications. But if you have 35 faculty and have a really robust, you know, selection committee, you may be able to really break those apart and have everyone go through and, and really kind of look at every piece of it without setting that filter. There are some programs that set specific filters as well for IMG applicants. And some of that may be relating to, do you actually have visa capability? Like all the things kind of from a institutional infrastructure support to be able to have those applicants. So there's lots of different ways to think about filtering. There is no way to like filter down necessarily like, hey, we have never had anyone go into private practice. So we're going to filter out anyone that like really wants to go be a private practice person in their small rural town because 
maybe we don't do the best job at <laughs> training that exact type of individual or have the mentorship for it, have those pieces. But I do think one thing that our specialty did during COVID, which really was amazing that our leaders got together and did the signaling program and that we were the first one to get that out there it really by ourselves for that first year. And when when you start to look, the nice part is when you do measures, when you do processes like this, like signaling, and you are good about getting some data on the front end and the back end, it really is like a quality improvement project. And so they've done a great job of having surveys kind of after the signaling process and, and have been able to kind of put together some interesting data. And so one of the things which I found kind of amazing was in 2021, obviously, we didn't really have in-person kind of like a ways as much. And that was like a huge thing that disrupted the system. That year, 29% of applicants matched to their home program and 31% match to a signaled program. And so the the signal is very powerful in terms of that kind of foot in the door perspective. A lot of the programs indicated that that, you know, they took that into account to basically get people through the door. Like it made them look at their application. It got them through that filtering stage. And they had that specific look that carried on to that screening stage. Even kind of the next year when we kind of went back to sub-eyes, 25% still or 26% still ended up at their home program, 26% where they did a sub-I, and 18% where they signaled. I think those numbers are actually just really interesting from the standpoint that one, your home program and where you do a sub-I, they get to see you be who you're going to be. It's essentially a work sample, which work sample tests are actually like very commonly described from the selection research. If you go there and you do a great job doing what you're going to do, then that is a huge foot in the door. Um, and so access to sub-eyes and access to a ways is a, a very powerful piece. And certainly thinking about that from an equity piece can bring up a lot of interesting conversations as well. And then from a signaling perspective, again, it's an opportunity to get that application through. So I think the signaling has been really interesting and certainly has been picked up now by multiple, multiple, multiple other specialties. For our listeners that don't know what signaling is, yeah. could you just briefly describe that process? Sure. Yeah. So what signaling is, is that it essentially gives the applicant a certain number of tokens to indicate the programs of interest to them. And so for otolaryngology, it has been in the neighborhood of like five, but basically a lower signal. It's varied a little bit in the years they've done it, depending on are you going to signal your if you've done a away rotation or not, or like if you come from a no home program, do you get one extra signal because you don't have a home program? So that kind of takes that equity piece away from you. So so they've kind of changed the numbers slightly. By and large, we fall into kind of the low numbers. The interesting thing this coming year in 2023 is that some of the specialties have fallen into the high number camp. And so orthopedic surgery actually gave out 30 signals. And so in doing so, if you don't give a program a signal, that program is probably going to assume that you really maybe don't want to come there. And so, so the high numbers potentially almost act as if there's an application cap because 
Yeah, it's like a surrogate for an application cap. It's like a workaround. Yeah, exactly. And then OBGYN actually did a two-tiered system. And so they, they, they decided they wanted to mix it up even further. And so they have three gold and 15 silver. So again, they're like 18 total. So that's a pretty large number and certainly larger than probably the average number of interviews someone might go on. And so both of those kind of push above that like average interview to get a successful match kind of situation. And so they are probably serving like a surrogate to an application cap. Yeah. I mean, I think that comes up a lot when people talk about the issue with us just having so many applications to review and, you know, how many of these people really are interested. And, you know, like if we could just cap the applications, then maybe that would fix everything. But can you speak to, you know, maybe some of the either legal reasons or otherwise why maybe there has not been capping of applications? Yeah. And I think, and honestly, it's really hard to very specifically find somebody saying like this legal something or that. Yeah. But for the most part, it generally has something to do with the fact that you can't really limit someone's job prospects in a way. And so it's sort of like from an equal opportunity employment standpoint, almost that you can't say that people can't cut off somebody's ability to apply to a job which essentially the match is that kind of continuation. And so that's generally what almost like the most detail I've really been able to find as opposed to like somebody actually challenging it from any kind of law-based standpoint or like Supreme Court case or anything like that. Yeah, that, but that makes sense. Um, and I mean, and we know that, you know, if, if you had somebody who was maybe borderline competitive but if they could just, you know, get in the door, if they could just do a sub I, then maybe they had a good chance of matching. But on paper, it just maybe wasn't as good. You would tell them, you know, maybe you do need to apply to more places. And so every applicant is not the same, which also makes it tricky. Tell me about letters. Are, you know, letters of recommendation now more heavily weighted? Do we use more buzzwords or what is it? The little I highly recommend, I recommend. I mean, yeah. does that, how does that stuff play a role now? Do you weigh them more now or not? Or is it the same? Yeah, I think that I probably weigh them just about the same kind of from my, from my own personal perspective. I think the thing that comes up that's interesting from the letters of recommendation standpoint is what are we trying to actually pull out of the letters of recommendation? It's like we know we have board scores as a bucket and like letters of rec as a bucket, but like what info were we trying to get out of that? And so when our specialty did create that standardized letter of recommendation, they were trying to essentially kind of focus down like, okay, we want to get info about professionalism and interpersonal communication skills and medical knowledge. And so they really tried to say, like, you know, define it down. Like, these are the things that we are trying to pull out of all of these, you know, big narrative letters that have lots of floofy language at times in specific terms like hard worker and yeah. <laughs> uh, excellent <laughs> candidate. Yeah. Excellent candidate. My absolute <laughs> number one of ever. So I think there was a good intention there. The studies that have looked at those is that we have totally have the Wobegon effect because basically every applicant ended up in the above 80th percentile on the check marks. And so clearly not every one can be above the 80th percentile. So it turned out that really a lot of people just ended up like going down to the bottom and like looking at the narrative comments anyways <laughs> on the standardized letters. And so I think that 
probably the use of the standardized letter maybe has not carried on as much. I feel like I've seen more narrative letters coming back around as opposed to the standardized letter, but it's definitely, you know, faster to do some of those things and and certainly objectifies it a little more. And so so there's aspects in it that I think could be really useful depending on tweaking it or, or updating it a little bit. I wanted to ask you, too, about the, the distance traveled question. We had Al Maradi on the podcast a little bit ago, and he kind of briefly talked about that. But I know you were also on a paper that talked about that and how that kind of maybe, you know, it's a, I mean, you can explain what it is, but, you know, can you tell us and our listeners about how that question adds information to the application itself and what the goal of that is? Yeah. And so that was something that they instituted at University of Seattle, but it's been, I think that they took some of that information from Michigan. So so there's certainly kind of other programs that have basically tried to find an opportunity for individuals to share a little bit more about their background and whether their path was potentially harder to overcome than other individuals. And certainly some people will speak to that a little bit in their personal statement, but I think that Everyone has a lot of the same personal statements. And it's like, I loved head and neck anatomy. And then I found my way into the OR. And then there's this patient that I really connected with. And not to say that they're all like that. And those definitely have their place. We want to know why you love Odo. But certainly people may not feel that that's the space that they're supposed to tell the tale of themselves and almost draw attention to the fact that they had those challenges. And so by kind of specifically opening up that space to say, we recognize that the path is not easy for everyone. And there may be something, you know, unique in your background that you've had to overcome or that that really just makes you a, a diverse candidate to the program. Maybe you like lived your entire life in a different country, but then kind of came over and you have these other experiences to kind of just add to, to the pool of the individuals at the residency program. And so on a like cursory survey of the faculty at Washington, about 70% of them felt that they they learned something different beyond what was in the application itself and that it did impact their kind of their thoughts and decisions around whether kind of like extending an invitation to interview and in some of those aspects. So we have, we've talked about signaling, we've talked about step one and step two, we've talked about some places having AOA, not AOA, the osteopathic, allopathic combined one system, and yet almost half of the osteopathic spots are not now available. We've talked about letters. Uh, what about other experiences? We've, we all talk about research and how important that is. And, you know, I think Ash makes a good point. Does that mean that now you have to do 100 papers? But do we also, do you look at employment history or what are some other things that we haven't looked at that maybe that you're looking at more now with this generation or, hey, you know, we haven't looked at this before, but we should because of this. You know, what else do we need to be thinking about? I think the the research piece is interesting from the standpoint that I think it's important that they all maybe have some aspect of research and exposure to research and understand like how to ask a question, how to look up information, how to kind of interpret it, how to do it in a way where you get ideally like valid and reliable results. Kind of all of those pieces, I think, just at face value are something that we want our residents to come out with as well. But I do think that depending on where you are, there is a vastly different amount of support for doing research. And it is 
way easier, not to say that research is easy, but if you're at an institution that has tons of fellows and tons of residents and like NIH funding and basically the whole infrastructure is there and you can be, you know, there's, it's easier to be a little bit more plug and play. You still have to have that motivation to do it and follow through, but that is definitely easier at some places than others. And so, so I think that certainly students are very intimidated by the like average 21 or 17, you know, abstracts, publications, presentations that are listed on the ERAS application in terms of like who matched successfully, at least when when individuals are kind of like asking about that. I'm like, you know, if you have a solid experience that you can speak to and share like what you learned, you know, from that experience, that is potentially just as valuable as Granted, yes, you got to give some credit to people that have really put a lot of work in and gotten multiple. But but again, you have to take that in the context of what else you were maybe doing. Like, were you working because you're a first generation, like college student, medical student, everything all the way through, and you've really been kind of putting yourself through that process. And then so that's kind of the research piece. And I know that one of the other things that comes up a lot in terms of that is like, do I take time off? I think I need to do an entire research year. Do I do it between one and two, two and three, three and four? And I'm like, do you want to be a clinician scientist? You may not know that answer right now, but like, do you? Then, yeah, sure. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe you know you're like on that track. But otherwise, to take an entire year off to do research just to try to make yourself marketable to maybe go and be the small ENT practice in your hometown that you know you've wanted to go back to because they put your ear tubes in when you were two. Having those be the hurdles that people are thinking about to try to get into our specialty, I think is really challenging. You make a good point. I mean, is this something that you were also doing for you and not just doing to boost your application? Because at the end of the day, there's only so many things you can do to boost your application or, you know, that sort of mindset once you do match into residency, you're doing stuff to boost and boost. You kind of forget what's important to you. And I feel like as an individual, it might keep you from continuing to grow and know what you like and don't like. And it's going to affect how you practice. Along those same lines, too, I mean, you know, we've been very lucky to have lots of individuals interested in otolaryngology. But it also means that there are quite a large number that year after year don't get to go into otolaryngology. And, you know, some of them find their way back in, depending on kind of what they do that next year. Some, you know, find their way to other specialties. But I think, you know, sometimes exploring some of the other options where maybe they are really interested in otolaryngology, maybe maybe they even weren't as 100% interested in the surgical aspect of things, but maybe they really loved like the medical side of things, or maybe they really like figuring out how to make patients better from like device work. And so trying to kind of keep some of those individuals that really are so passionate about otolaryngology kind of in the field in an extended way, what options might there be kind of from that perspective too? Yeah. And I'm curious, have you looked at the backup application or dual application or parallel plan, you know, the, all the different names for basically applying to another specialty at the same time, just in case you don't match into ENT, which is a lot to ask. I mean, it, it is putting together an ENT application and doing all the aways and getting all your letters. I mean, that's huge by itself. But to, to do that work for an entire different specialty which you're going to need 
entirely different letters for and trying to fit in a ways for that. And most of the students who have done something like that have told me that whoever the backup plan is, they know that <laughs> that they're the backup and they don't like that either. You know, like you may not do, you may not match well into that specialty because nobody wants to be anybody's backup plan. So that's always a difficult conversation too. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that or have you looked at that at all? Yeah, I think that that is something that is really almost just a very large problem in terms of medicine in general. If you look at the NRMP kind of match numbers, basically like writ large, like last year there was forty over 47,000 applicants to 36,000 spots. And so there's 11,000 individuals that registered for the NRMP above the number of slots available. So some of that, you know, I think is because we have been having, there was essentially, you know, this mandate of we need more physicians. And so, you know, more medical schools opened up, but there has not been as much of a change in the positions available from a residency perspective to catch up to those medical slots. And so there are some recent bills that like went through Congress in terms of amping up the residency complement. I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's like in the, it's in the thousands. Like it's I think maybe like a couple thousand. No, I'm not. I, I don't know the exact numbers, yeah. but basically it's somewhere filling some of that gap on a year to year basis. It's like a thousand or two thousand slots in terms of trying to meet some of that projected need for physicians in total, as well as to kind of match up to basically these medical students that many of them are potentially coming out. Now, certainly those numbers do also have like IMG graduates and some of them are non-U.S. citizens. And and so that inflates the numbers a little bit in terms of individuals graduating, you know, out of our U.S. Uh, programs. But still, those numbers, just like as big numbers, you're like, wow. So there's like 11, yeah, 11,000 people applying that they're like, even if everyone matched perfectly 100%, they're still out there. Are there any updated guidelines or guidance from ACGME or SUO, the Society of University Otolaryngologists, regarding the application process? So for the most part, in terms of SUO, there are, those are largely kind of around just like the the signaling that we're still doing on our standalone site. And there's, again, kind of the slightly different guidance this year depending on kind of a ways that you can do and whether you should signal your home program, basically kind of working through that that system. And then there is nothing specific in terms of step two and really whether or not that is mandatory or highly recommended or not recommended or anything that's been essentially kind of left to individual programs to, to decide what to do from that standpoint. Have you heard anything or have you looked into the effects of the virtual interview, specifically related to things like interview hoarding, where you see potentially because there's no travel anymore and there's no real cost of traveling all over the country to go to these places physically, you can kind of just log on and you could theoretically every day, you know, have just interviews lined up, boom, boom, boom. The top half or the top quarter of applicants could potentially do all the interviews or do a big chunk of them. And how does that affect programs? Are there programs that are, have we seen that there's pro slots going unfilled because of that? Or is it too early to tell? What is What are your thoughts on that? I think the virtual interview piece is just totally ripe 
for more research and understanding. You know, I think that in many ways created a space for virtual interviews to happen. I don't think if COVID hadn't happened, we would have so quickly even entertained doing virtual interviews because it has just barely come up, maybe like one program here, one program there in different specialties. But basically, it was like this mass acceleration. And then, you know, certainly there are benefits to it from a students are coming out of their training, basically their educational curriculum that they're following at their home institutions. It is obviously much less expensive. And so that levels the playing field in terms of kind of added debt or being able to pay for the flights, the hotels, all the pieces that come with the interviews. There's been at least one study that kind of looked at the potential environmental savings of not having all of those flights back and forth across the country from individuals. But I think the biggest reticence is Historically, we have always done in-person interviews. You know, there is something to be said for physically being in the spaces with individuals. Certainly, you can get some aspect of that now that we have decent video and audio where we can see each other like we're doing today. But there is something different when you are physically in a room. The way literally our bodies interact with one another is different. So I think that that's something that people really want to get back to. And, and certainly, again, depending on the, the programs, there are some programs that are like, I want people to see my city. Like, I want them to think they could come here because they may not even from like the city that that program is in. Uh, or like, I want to showcase my, you know, like our institution, what we do and feel like that piece as much as we tried to do some of that during COVID with social media and, you know, the, the YouTubes, the videos the Twitter chats, the Instagram <laughs> gatherings, like all the pieces that there's something that we maybe haven't figured out how to try to capture in those other forums. But, uh, you know, there there are ways, especially as we get more, you know, like 3D and, you know, holographic tour, you know, we may, we may get there where we can almost simulate it. But I think that, that the virtual interview piece from that standpoint is is really interesting because I think there's a lot of pressure to want to go back because there's just so much time that we've spent doing it the other way. But there are potentially a lot of benefits from doing the virtual interviews. And so, you know, might there be some aspect of doing both almost, you know, like, do you do some larger screening pool of virtual interviews? And then maybe that gives you the opportunity to actually sort of interview more people. But then you then bring that down to another subset that you actually kind of interview in person. All those are added time, added cost to each of those two. So there's a, you know, wide open space to figure out. Yeah. Virtual interview. Yeah. There's so many ways it could go from here. So many different ideas. Once you start getting away from that traditional model, then everything opens up about like, well, we could also, if we're changing this, then we could also change this and we could change this. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, for fellowship, I thought virtuals was a great option. Hybrid could work. For one year, though, it's okay. I think for residency, which is five, it's it, it's nice to see a place. It's nice to see that interaction among the faculty and the residents, and you do miss that piece. I was going to ask what you guys' thoughts were. With all these changes in the application 
and, you know, virtual interviews now. Has that changed the way the actual interview goes for you on interview day? Do you have it so that it's more structured or in every different room? We ask this one, it's the same, this one question, please, ask, you know, about communication. And maybe in this other room, you ask about professionalism or, you know, have you found other ways to how, it, how it's impacted the way you interview? At our institution, we at the moment still do a little bit more unstructured interviews. Again, too, with kind of the military, we've got a smaller pool of individuals that we're dealing with. And we're one of the the larger military medical sites. We still had kind of applicants coming for away rotations. And we usually do their in their interviews while they're there during the away, actually. So we don't bring back for like a separate kind of interview day. We just kind of do interviews while they're there, kind of somewhat asynchronously, but like throughout the time period that they're there. Yeah. And I mean, we did virtual interviews this year and we did try to do each different room had at least one question that was maybe on the realm of leadership or communication or different things like that. But I mean, I felt like it went similar to how it goes in person. There's kind of like that one very structured interview question. And then it kind of like then it's like, well, you're kind of more get to know you type um, questions, too as much as you can talking to each other across the screen. So so let's get to some of the bigger sort of global as we sort of kind of start rounding things out a little bit. So with all these changes, how do you think it's going to affect who is drawn into otolaryngology and who matches into ENT and sort of what our future workforce might look like, how this all might affect uh, medical education and how we and because we said, you know, even counseling medical students right now, it's really hard because I don't think we always know. There's not a right answer. It sounds like a little bit more soul searching, <laughs> if anything, on everybody's side. One of the biggest things is really probably reaching out and working with our kind of like local, you know, local medical schools and starting to identify some of that interest early as much as ms1s can figure out that ent is a specialty (laughs) (laughs) and uh and start the process early and make some of those barriers for for when things come up later i did not plan to go into otolaryngology when i went to medical school i thought i was going to be a pediatrician didn't really even know that much about otolaryngology and i figured it out during my third year when i happened to pick it (laughs) as a elective. And so I was like the person doing the scramble at the end of third year, rearranging my entire fourth year schedule. Me too. I thought I was going to be primary care outpatient all the way. My exposure to otolaryngology was very late and I was not a was not AOA. I didn't have the high board score. So I it was a it was a struggle. I used to always joke how was the uh, they matched the wrong Indian applicant at Jefferson and somehow I got lucky on that. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, I I mean I, I constantly tell that that applicants and medical students now I'm like I would not match with you guys. Like you guys are so more, much more impressive than I was. But I, but I think that that is probably said by almost like every generation about the generation that comes after them because we learn things from you know our prior generation and we try to feed that down, you know maybe sooner and earlier. And so so I think the the efforts kind of create that exposure early. That certainly is one thing through Head Mirror that I work with. We have the National Otolaryngology Interest Group that started two years ago, you know, for kind of the, again, especially kind of like the no-home ENT students, like the the individuals that have a harder time identifying resources and kind of building those mentorship relationships. That's kind of the biggest thing. I mean, really, the mentorship 
and then subsequently the sponsorship. But the the mentorship is is how you can kind of foster all the things that are needed to try to get into our specialty. And so the more we can kind of identify those individuals that even have started to spark that interest and kind of keep that going throughout the time period, I think is, you know, how how we help. I listened to the ENT in a nutshell, the Head Mirror podcast for my CPO last, was it last fall? 2021. It was awesome. I love the ENT in a nutshell podcast for, especially for like board review, all that in-service review. It, they're great. The great talks for, especially for all the residents who work on that, on the podcast. It's it's awesome. Yeah. The, the residents do an amazing job. The questions are good. I mean, and it's hard to like speak and, you know, like ask the questions and then they kind of have summaries at the end and they're well done. So kudos to the ENT in a nutshell and the head mirror space as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Any um, parting words or any last pearls of wisdom or things that you'd like to leave our listeners with as we round this out? Yeah, I think the one thing which I have found so interesting throughout this whole process is just stumbling upon the field of industrial and organizational psychology, which is literally an entire discipline out of psychology that is dedicated to like work and selection. And so there really are selection science experts. And so the general surgery community has actually partnered with some industrial and organizational psychologists and done some work exploring kind of some different aspects of kind of some possible filters in a way, things such as situational judgment tests, but basically little vignettes where they give an idea of the work that you're going to do. And so it's almost like a multiple choice test, but around the work that you're going to do. They've done some work where they've shown that doing that, they kind of picked out individuals that they may not have by doing a USMLE filter. And so they found some improvements in terms of like their diverse representation in their interview pool by using some of these other different facets. So, you know, I think that we absolutely have the content expertise. Like there's no way somebody that has not gone through this and is not an otolaryngologist can understand like what's needed. But I think that there's a lot of, you know, opportunities to think about what other kind of disciplines are doing and potentially partner and even kind of like go beyond what we've done in the past, just using kind of the status quo. It's exciting. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation and change. And I think with covid and it feel it feels like the world has become a little bit smaller because we're a little we can connect so easily you know through these virtual platforms so maybe there's more collaboration i don't know i'm i'm excited to see what happens and how things shake out and evolve so thank you for taking the time to chat with us today if um, listeners want to find you on the socials are you on twitter or linkedin or you know otherwise how, how would you like people to reach out to you Yes, I am on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. Awesome. And your handles, is it is it just your name or? Yeah, D- Dr. Sarah Nbo, N is my middle initial. Some variety of that, but pretty close to that. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, ladies. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. 
If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Ovrijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.